0: We have to ask ourselves, if there are lies out there currently about the coronavirus, who is creating them? And why would someone do this? Because the outcome is eventually that people might die. There is not a more serious consequence that you can even think of. Yeah. So why would someone do this?
1: (music) Hello everyone and welcome to the Encrypted podcast. I'm your host Ahmed Balaghi. It's been quite an extraordinary time we live in. The world as we know it is in total shutdown due to the coronavirus outbreak. And from me and the whole Encrypted team, I would like to wish all of our listeners, supporters and everyone around the world good health in these extreme times. Now, this is our 65th episode, and I'm delighted to say this is our first remote recording since the outbreak occurred. And we have a special guest, Arwen Smith, who is the author of Identity Reboot and the lead blockchain strategist at Mintbit. Now, on this episode, we talk about lies, the taxonomy of fake news, how the outbreak of Corona accelerated unnecessary panic, And finally, we'll discuss potential tech solutions around decentralized data, self-sovereign identity that could help during a crisis like this. All this and more on this episode of Encrypted. Also, I'd really like to thank those who've been supporting the show. And remember, you support us in any way possible. You can subscribe, rate, and review the show, sharing the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. And now onto the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Encrypto Podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Balaghi. It's been a really, really interesting past few weeks. And for some of you guys following us, we haven't published an episode recently, or well, at least in the past two weeks, because of this manic situation over COVID. And yeah, we're, we're now doing a podcast fully remote, which is exciting. So our first guest on our first remote podcast post-COVID-19 <laughs> is Arwen Smith. Say hello Arwen.
0: Hi everyone, thank you for having me Ahmed.
1: Of course, so Arwen here is the, the lead blockchain strategist at Mintbit and she's the author of Identity Reboot. Arwen, tell me how self-isolation going?
0: It is going okay. It is true that Life as we know it will change for the next few weeks. But for me personally, I got a new desk, I got new headphones and I'm all set for the next few weeks to, to work from home. Oh, so, so your timeline is next few weeks.
1: <laughs> That's interesting. So you're, you're very positive that after a few weeks, then we'll go back to normal, huh?
0: I think that we're almost moving towards a new, new normal I do not think that we will be going back to life the way it was before the pandemic hit, but I'm pretty sure we'll get to that during this conversation.
1: Interesting. Yes, we we absolutely will. So before we do get to that, please tell us who you are and what you do?
0: So my focus is technology ethics. So the way to think about that is that technology has intended consequences on society It being used for the purposes it was created to do, but it also has unintended consequences. And over the past five years, we have seen numerous instances of what those unintended consequences could look like. So what I do is I advise senior decision makers in government, in the public sector and in the private sector on the long term impact of technology. And most recently, I've written a book on data privacy that goes really deep into the larger impact of our data decisions, of our individual decisions on sharing information Mm -hmm. and what actually happens with that information.
1: Okay. And tell us a bit more about your book, Identity Reboot.
0: So think about it like this. Whenever you wake up, the first thing you do Especially in these times, is that you, you open your phone. So constantly we are interacting with hardware that captures data. And on this hardware, may it be our phone or a computer, are numerous apps and services that are also collecting data. Mm-hmm. And if you take the aggregate of all these different touch points, and you are talking about thousands of touch points per person per day, you're quickly coming to the conclusion that the data profile that people are generating is completely unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Now, it follows that the interest in this particular data profile is unprecedented also. So on the profit side, It's completely logical that companies are interested in this particular data to better market their products and services. It is completely logical that we have social media platforms that gather even more data so they could sell this data to advertisers to better serve you ads. But it also becomes apparent if we believe that to be true that all this information about you is being used to nudge you, to steer you towards a certain action. And the more information becomes available, the more convincing these nudges become. And what we're seeing now is that it is not just convincing someone to buy a particular product, but this convincing becomes more refined and it extends to information. And that's where COVID 19. Comes in because if you know someone very well, maybe even better than they know themselves, you're also gaining the ability to serve them or a specific narrative, a specific story that they're likely to believe. In other words, you can create an entire information ecosystem around them believing that. A certain action within a certain breadth of actions is the best action to take. And that is, again, the action that you're aiming for. Mm.
1: Okay. And so I remember sort of seeing something like this in this documentary I'm sure you've seen and people are aware of called The Great Hack, where, you know, it basically exposed... How Donald Trump used Cambridge Analytica or data services to basically nudge people to do something in particular, which was not to vote for Hillary, but to sort of vote for him instead. And, you know, we basically been living through things like this for for quite some time already. And how sort of do you see this happening play about now? I mean, before the podcast, we were talking about, you know, a recent keynote that you gave in Washington about about sort of lying and fake news. Could you sort of go into that?
0: So Cambridge Analytica is not the problem. It is a symptom. What Mm -hmm. we're seeing around the fake news surrounding COVID-19, again, is not the problem, but it's a symptom of a certain environment that we have collectively created, that a certain body of data is out there and that a certain set of actors legally has a mandate of using that data for particular ends. The keynote that you mentioned that I did in in Washington, it feels a lifetime ago, but actually (laughs) it it was last week. That was titled From Fake to Facts. And the topic of the keynote was, first of all, how strong is a digital lie? So how do you create a lie? Then... The second question that we wanted to answer was, so if you have created a lie online, who can the lie reach? So there you're talking about, okay, how big is this body of data and what are the targeting mechanisms available? So how specific is your lie? And then the third question asked how to sever the link between the two. So after I I did the keynote, approximately two hours later, the... Chair of the conference made an emergency announcement, and this was last Wednesday. So he got up on the stage and he actually told everyone that we needed to do an emergency evacuation of the conference center. It was actually supposed to be a two-day conference, but we just finished the keynotes and we were already all told that we had to vacate the premise by, by the end of the day. So that was a particularly irony. (laughs) That's wow. That that is, uh, and that was day one,
1: right? That was day one, exactly. Interesting. So, how does sort of a lie being created online sort of is correlated now with you know recent events? I mean, the reason why I'm asking this is because you know everyone sort clearly remembers you know President Trump saying. Corona is is a hoax, right? And and then Fox News also regurgitating that as well, which might have also led to, you know, like absolutely no preemptive measures whatsoever from the US government. And so what do you think sort of the implications of those lies
0: were? So if you think about a term like fake news, mm-hmm. you are actually it's it's a misnomer because the term can actually be broken down into Three more concrete categories. Mm-hmm. And the first of these categories is called misinformation. Mm-hmm. That is information that is false, but not necessarily harmful. So you might call it a white lie. Then there is more information.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that is information that is harmful, but not necessarily false. So here you could think of information that is kept aside and unleashed at the optimal moment to do the most damage politically. Or you could think about revenge porn. And then there's the third category, disinformation. So that category is both false and there is intent to harm. Mm. Now, the problem with COVID-19 or the coronavirus specifically is that it is a blend of disinformation some things are clearly false and clearly intended to harm and misinformation that people are spreading lies but not necessarily with the intent to harm others mm. and then of course there is the political reaction and that's a tricky one because politics politics The other side will always look at the statements of a certain politician with the explicit aim to take them out of context.
1: Okay. Do you have any examples?
0: Well, for example, what you just mentioned about President Donald Trump, the Mm. coronavirus is a hoax statement was actually part of a longer statement where he called the Democrats taking his words out of context a hoax. (laughs) Um, So that particular phrase was actually copied by a political campaign on the Democrat side. So that's actually not the complete statement. So in, in that particular case, it's just, it's this traditional framing. Yeah. And that's also what makes this, this specific situation so difficult because if you look again at the first category, misinformation, you see clear, now debunked lies spreading via private encrypted channels. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily happening on Twitter or Facebook. And that is very important because that means that there's also more difficult to verify these stories. A couple of examples. Something mm-hmm. that you see on Facebook and Twitter is something in the lines of coronavirus is a weapon and it's human made. And it could be developed by either the US or China or the UK or even Bill Gates Yeah. Cases, the narrative goes, well, this is clearly false. And what is interesting is that the actors change depending on the context of those viewing the story. So in America, it's a leg that is developed by Bill Gates. In Iran, it is a that it's a US bioweapon or a disease weaponized by Israel. So you can see people trying to divide those who are already insecure, who are already stressed, further into camps. So that's clear disinformation, and that's, that's public, that's open. Yeah. If you look at the misinformation, you can think of messages that skate that ibuprofen is harmful. This is completely taken out of context, and the World Health Organization claimed publicly that there is no proof for this. Interesting. Or that you must eat garlic to make yourself immune for the virus. Well, a Chinese woman believed this to such yeah. an extent that like she ate 1.5 kilos of raw garlic and ended up in the hospital.
1: Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> or
0: things such as a cold weather or hot weather would kill the yeah. coronavirus. And this doesn't take into account at all, this is also debunked, that the human body's oh, really? temperature oh. remains around uh, 37 degrees.
1: Really? I thought this was true. I mean, you know, I, I thought hot weather does kill the virus, or at least it stops the spread of it. So that that's a debunked story as well. That,
0: though, huh? That's definitely debunked, because if you... First of all, the World Health Organization debunked it on their website. But also, if we use common sense, I think about normal human body temperature. And we acknowledge the fact that the coronavirus is already in over 180 countries and that in some of those countries, the weather is definitely above, let's say, 30 degrees. Then we can conclude or deduct that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that people who are forwarding these type of messages so the misinformation yeah. type of messages via these private encrypted channels they just want their loved ones to be safe yeah things are developing with such a speed that people are just clamping on on anything they might get even if it is it takes a bit of a stretch of the imagination just in case it might be true and their loved ones might be a little more safe
1: yeah I, I mean, I totally get that, especially when you think about it from, you know, different cultures where they rely more on trust and what their family members would say, rather than sort of a higher authority saying something in particular. So, you know, if I'm in a rural village and my son comes to me and says, this is good for you, this will help us protect against Corona, boom, okay, I, I trust what he says. For example. And it's easy to, for that misinformation to spread to these types of cultures because if it's on a sort of a trust-based level, then they won't question what's given to them.
0: I think you're touching about something very fundamental, is that trust is essential, it's core, really, to this entire yeah. conversation. And it does also bring us back to data. So, for example, yeah. if you open Google, and you can type in the most obscure search query in the world, you will find on that first page websites that affirm your point of view. So we are creating with the internet online, these very precise targeted information universes where it is affirmed what we already want to believe. And what is more, this is, enforced via practices such as Mm micro-targeting. Do you know what micro-targeting is? No idea. Micro-targeting is is the very specific serving of information, particularly ads. Now, micro-targeting, if you think about it that way, is the absolute opposite of a shared reality. And now in a pandemic... When what we need is unity and togetherness and solidarity, such practices become first maybe unethical, but later even dangerous, because it is paramount that people follow the advice of their governments right now.
1: Yeah. So when you say micro targeting, is this do, do you mean in this, in the in the case of different communities in terms of like country specific? What what do you mean exactly?
0: Micro-targeting is is a tool of serving online information, so you could apply it to to politics. Mm -hmm. This is exactly why there was such a controversy around, for example, Cambridge Analytica, because they made very granular profiles and they used these granular profiles to serve granular data.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But you could also use it, for example, for products. You could use it specifically to sow chaos or division, etc. Mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. And that's part of the reason why wait, like, actually let me let me take a few a few steps back. So I now focus on technology ethics, but I was into the technology part before I was into the ethics part.
2: Mm.
0: Before, years ago, I just assumed that technology would be beneficial to society. And then around 2016, Cambridge Analytica happened, and then Brexit happened. And basically in the UK, I consistently woke up to news that I thought previously not to be possible. And I started to do some digging in how, how did this happen? And then I discovered that the private infrastructure that we've built, the social media platforms and all the other channels that we use mm-hmm. to spread information can be used for good and bad ends. While mm-hmm. this might sound intuitive, this was not at all accepted
2: yeah. at the time.
0: And the mechanisms underlying these platforms, such as gathering data, very specific, very granular data and serving very specific and very granular information, mass customization, as it were, was always considered to be a good thing. But now we're seeing how that very same practice can actually further divide, further fragment, and further oppose narratives, communities, and eventually people up to the point, back to what you said earlier. That it changes how we trust.
1: Mm, yeah. And so then, how do you think, then, you know, people, when they get these WhatsApp messages or when, you know, they see something online, how could they sort of, you know, ensure what, that what they're getting is actually factual and it's not fake information, whether it's misinformation, malinformation, disinformation? I mean, we're, you know, because of isolation, we have way more screen time you know even when we were doing the podcast we 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 were on one provider now and there was a lag and there was a lag maybe because of you know there was increased usage of the internet and wi-fi and you know so people are more subject to their phones and laptops and information so what does that mean you know how could we sort of protect ourselves from consuming fake news
0: i think it's An effort that requires all of us, not just us as consumers, but also us as creators, us as technologists, us Mm -hmm. as governments. So personally, what we can do is we can identify trusted sources that have done diligent research. So in this particular case, don't be afraid to trust the experts and the real experts at this particular moment, it's a pandemic, meaning all of us all over the world, is the World Health Organization. Take mm-hmm. that advice seriously. So go back to the source. And you can see this happening already. For example, the search traffic to sites such as BBC or the New York Times is searching because people want to go back to diligent journalism sensationalism is not going to do anyone any good at this particular point in time. Yep. So go back to the source. That's what people can do. Secondly, we have to ask ourselves if there are lies out there currently about the coronavirus, who is creating them and why would someone do this? Because the outcome is eventually that people might die. There is not a more serious consequence that you can even think of yeah so why would someone do this well and again there there are two reasons that we might consider so the first one is a commercial motivation you have tele evangelists that specifically push narratives to promote products that they happen to sell so that's a very clear commercial and direct commercial motivation There are also content creators that know that their posts polarize and thus trends, that advertisements will be served next to their content. So that's an indirect route to monetization. There we see, again, private infrastructure being used for both good and bad ends, where the advertisements, in fact, subsidize the lies. Yeah. Yeah. What we want to achieve in this first category is to remove the commercial angle of disinformation. Then the second category is even more tricky because then you enter the political. And a recent report came out by the EU, a private report for now, that hints that a large part of the disinformation that we've seen sampled from 80 examples of disinformation, actually came from Russian sources. Okay. if I may, I would like to to quote something from the report. Sure. So part of the report reads, pro-Kremlin media outlets have been prominent in spreading disinformation about the coronavirus, with the aim to aggravate the public health crisis in Western countries specifically by undermining public trust in national healthcare systems. So this again ties back to your earlier theme that you touched upon, trust. So if we believe that Russia meddled in the American 2016 election, and if we believe that Russia in this particular case is sowing disinformation about the coronavirus in a time that Europe is at its most fragile, then... We could speculate that a motivation is chaos.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow!
0: And the breakdown of trust in institutions, and yeah. the whole reason, and we're now kind of getting ahead of ourselves, that trust that democracy works in Western countries is the trust in institutions.
1: Yeah, I mean that—that that is a, a very interesting. I don't know if I want to call it a conspiracy theory, but I, <laughs> I never—I never thought we'd be discussing something like this here. No, that—that that is pretty, um, pretty wild. And you're right. I mean, I think I think there has also been a trend in how you know there's been a decline in sort of a trust in institutions. And I think that's been a pre-existing trend. And this, I mean, it could accelerate it. We shall see. What what I did want to also ask was, I mean, away from the politics, (laughs) is how can we use technology to sort of to ensure that we get factual news so you know we're, we've both been working with blockchain space we see you know different solutions coming out there that sort of allows us to get truthful data so I was wondering if we could talk a bit about that and to sort of just sort of showcase you know what the future could hold if this technology was adopted correctly.
0: Blockchain is a general purpose technology just like the internet and you can think about it as, as a different way of sharing information in this case, captured in in data. That's the easiest way of, of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And what it allows you to do is, in a decentralized way, verify that certain information is true. So it minimizes the cost of trust. That's the correct way of thinking about blockchain when you are talking about information. Mm-hmm. So that's very simple principle, how do you minimize the cost of trust, has a lot of different applications if, if you think about fighting disinformation. So one thing you can think of if you think about written lies is proof provenance so protect provenance of the source. Mm-hmm. So, for example, verify the metadata trail end to end. Metadata is data about data. So, for example, this article was written on the 16th of March. It was published at five o'clock by this particular journalist for this particular outlet. Now, if we have that particular trail, then it will be harder to take that information out of context because we know where it came from later on. Then, if you think about visual disinformation, we can again look at metadata, but we could also look, if you look at deep fakes, for example, at blockchain hashes. If we would record a hash at every, let's say second of a one minute video, and then we have a slightly altered version of that same video, and we put that next to it. You can see these hashes as lines of a fingerprint, and if the video has been tampered with, the hashes will not match.
1: Right, so the fingerprints so, won't match.
0: Exactly, so the fingerprints won't match. So that's, that's another way of, of, of verifying if the information in front of you is actually real. Now, if we cannot do that, what we could focus on is how do we slow lies? So we already talked about removing the commercial angle of misbehavior. Mm-hmm. We can think of algorithmic amplification, but blockchain shows great promise if you start thinking about data ownership. So maybe people can create the lies, but they just cannot reach you specifically. So self-sovereign identity is a version of identity. With identity in this context, I mean data. So verifiable claims about you and the data universe you create on the fringes thereof. hmm and if you control your own data, so you control, first of all, claims about you, I am Arvin, I live in London, et cetera, et cetera. And the information that I create on, on a day-to-day basis, if I would control the creation of that information and access to that information as well, I would know who would use that information to serve me particular content. So I would already be a lot more informed in how my information environment is actually constructed. And this particular part that we are informed on why we're actually seeing what we're seeing, why we're actually reading what we're reading, and mm-hmm. by extension, why we're actually thinking what we're thinking is absolutely paramount. And it's one of the great perks of and great arguments for self-sovereign identity.
1: Okay, can you explain what self-sovereign identity is for those who never heard of that term before?
0: So the word sovereign is... Sometimes in history, it's used for, for kings and, and queens. Being a sovereign of something. Being self-sovereign means that you control something about you. That's where the word itself comes from. It might not be catchy, but it is an accurate yeah. term. So that's where the term self-sovereign identity is coming from. So think about it like this. You become the center of your own data universe all the different data points all the different services are connected primarily to you so not necessarily there is a facebook you there's a snapchat you there's a google you but you are the new nexus for your data and these services are connected to you so self-sovereign identity takes that center of gravity of data ownership and places it at the individual and as an individual you can do two things so On one hand, you can create a series of statements, and in Mm -hmm. blockchain jargon, we would call this a series of proofs Mm -hmm. that prove certain facts about yourself. So, for example, there can be proofs that are absolute, such as your name or your date of birth that are inalienable to every person. There can be a a set of proofs or attestations, is also a term that is used, Mm -hmm. that are accumulated, such as I am going to this particular school or university, or "This, this is my employment history. And there can be a series of proofs that are relational, so they can be bestowed upon you by someone else so for example the government could grant you uh, nationality for example and what is key about these proofs is that first of all they are verified via cryptography they are bi-directional so you could revoke access to a proof
1: Okay, so you you have your identity trail, which sort of allows you to accumulate these new data entries like where you went for school, your accomplishments, your achievements, much like how we input them ourselves via LinkedIn, right? Something like that. And what's interesting here is, you know, I, I think that one awesome use case would, you know, for example, journalists who you know, could have a track of how they've been spreading information, how they've been doing their journalism, and they sort of build reputation. And YC see is like really awesome inbuilt reputation models built into these sort of frameworks that can help sort of people decide how genuine this information is because it's coming from a particular source that's been voted, or let's say, four out of five or, or whatever the, the metrics are for that. Is that like something?
0: Then then you're going more towards using blockchain as a reputation feature rather than a concept of self sovereign identity, where you are creating Mm. this network of attestations about yourself, and then by extension, give third parties access to these particular attestations.
1: It's like a byproduct, the third party access.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, indeed, you are you are building a set of attestations or proofs about yourself that can be of various form. So, they can be indeed inalienable, such as your name or your date of birth. They can be accumulated, such as your education or your employment history, and they can be bestowed or relational, such as citizenship. Mm-hmm and the second part that we need to take into consideration is that next to these proofs or claims that allows you to do things you could bestow access to these claims so other parties can do things with your information yeah. where you granted specific access now if we know who has access to our data then we have more insight in how our information environment came to be and that's how we can relate self-sovereign identity back to the fake news surrounding Mm -hmm. COVID-19.
1: Because then you would know who's feeding you that information. Is that right?
0: You would have more insight in why you are reading what you're reading, why you're seeing Ah, seeing, why your information environment is the way it is. And if there are parties in there that you do not want in there, you could revoke access.
1: Interesting. So essentially what you're saying is that currently the, the current paradigm is that we've given our data, we've given access to our data to so many people that we have no idea who have given it to, and it's being used in ways that we do not know. And with this self-sovereign identity concept, which is being worked on by many different people, including you, which you've written a book about, this would allow more granular insights for us as individuals to know who's using our data and exactly for what. And that sort of gives us more liberation, more freedom into how we go about doing things and and about, you know, how we even sort of document and go about our lives.
0: Exactly. Because what is the alternative? I would argue that it's unethical to gather data about a person if the result is that that data is being used to serve them lies.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. No, no, of course. And this is something that, you know, we're sort of living to tell the tale of, of, of the consequences that we're seeing about this. So yeah, that's super interesting, I say, solution to to when problems like this would, would arise again. Cool. So we're, we're sort of running slightly out of time, but just one or two more questions. I wanted to know just a bit more about you. So what would you say was the one thing that shaped you to become the person you are today
0: that's quite a big question
1: (laughs) yeah i'd expect a quick answer
0: (laughs) okay great great (laughs) well there there is there is one thing that happened maybe four or five five years ago is that i I was walking the street one day, and sometimes people talk about these epiphany moments, these these light bulb moments. Yeah. And I, I, it was just like a normal street, and there were cars running. It was just like a, a busy road in London, houses left and right. And at some point, I, <laughs> I was looking at a chair at the furniture shop and then I was looking at a little bench by the side of the road and then I was looking at something by and it just hit me that everything I was seeing was once designed or imagined by someone and then I started to think okay so these are things what what else well of course we have the institutions that we use we have the value systems we ascribe to it can go bigger and bigger and bigger. So, mm-hmm. basically, the entire society that we live in yeah. is, is a common story and it has been imagined at some point in time. And what absolutely changed my life actually is that I came to the realization that that also means you can reimagine it. So, if something yes. doesn't work, why not think of a better way? And that's been a driving force behind my fascination for ethics and technology and increasingly how value systems are embedded in our societies.
1: Awesome. And that is probably one of the best ways to, <laughs> to end this recording. Now, I like that. I like that a lot. And, and especially when you said sort of, sort of embedding values and systems into part of the solution that, that you're creating. Great. So if somebody wanted to reach out to you, how could they do that?
0: LinkedIn is the best way and definitely do reach out. I actually reply to all my messages.
1: Awesome. We have a LinkedIn responder right here. That's great. Not many people reply on LinkedIn. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Arwen. And yeah, if anyone has any questions, please reach out to us. If anybody has any questions for me or feedback over the podcast, do make sure you do reach out to us. And if you have not subscribed to the show, do subscribe. And if you haven't rated the show, then what are you waiting for? We're looking forward to all your responses. Thank you so much for listening and thank you, Arwen, for coming on again.
0: Thank you very much for having me.